Hello and welcome to the latest Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom. Today is Thursday, November the 3rd. We are two days after the dramatic elections to the 25th Knesset. And to chew over the results and dissect, uh, dissect them and see what they mean for the future, I'm delighted to be joined by Carrie Keller-Lynn, who is the political correspondent for the Times of Israel. Carrie, thank you very much indeed for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. So perhaps we could start and uh, just reflect. I mean, as I said, it's uh, we're two days after the vote. Um, we have we don't have the final results yet, but things are taking shape. That it appears that the Netanyahu bloc um, has sixty-five seats, which is pretty dramatic and significant um, for the uh, for the Likud and the return of Netanyahu to the prime minister's office. Perhaps we could start and, uh, from a political correspondent's perspective, you could tell us maybe one or two of the, the highlights of the campaign that you covered. Absolutely. I think the biggest highlight is the fact that after five elections in under four years, Israel might finally have a stable government. We might finally have an answer to the question that has been central to these last five elections, which is whether or not Netanyahu should be prime minister. Again, as Israel's most popular, but also most divisive politician, this has played a central role. And with 65 seats in the pro-Netanyahu bloc, which includes both Likud, uh, a far-right party called Religious Zionism, which means Jewish power, and the two Haredi parties, Shas and United Torah Judaism, we finally have uh, the possibility, of course, government will be formed in the coming weeks, a possibility of a government that can actually break us out of this deadlock. So I think that that must be the most um, exciting uh, consequence of this election season because it's something that's really eluded Israelis' political stability if we see it happen. In terms of the election season itself, it was a relatively sleepy four months. Um, mm. Israelis have been really just kind of exhausted and, and battered by both elections and it overlapped with both the summer um, and the fall holidays, the Jewish high holidays. Um, so this was a relatively sleepy election season that was percolated by a, a couple of events. One was um, the Iran deal, which ended up not being signed uh, between um, Western powers and Iran. Another was the Lebanon maritime deal, which was signed ultimately between Israel and the Lebanese government uh, with American mediation. Both of those kind of bookended the election season. Um, and in that process, both Benjamin Netanyahu, leader of the Likud, um, and his chief political rival this season, uh, Yeshati leader and current prime minister, Yair Lapid, kind of, I would say this was like a synecdoche for their strategy the entire election season. Uh, Netanyahu tried to paint himself as the only candidate who could be a statesman, a diplomat, could be Israel's uh, most experienced representative to the world and handle security matters, especially those facing us from external threats like Lebanon and Iran, uh, whereas Lapid tried to portray himself as despite being very short on prime ministerial experience, this being only four months in office as caretaker prime minister, uh, that he would run a rose garden campaign uh, where he would show that he was able to handle Israel's concerns on these fronts and, and ultimately uh, whether or not uh, to Lapid's credit, um, they did play out in his favor, but not at the ballot box. Um, thank you for that. I mean, you, I was going to ask you later, but since you brought it up, the, the, the maritime deal, um, do you see this as, as a stable deal that uh, Netanyahu will now, will now honor or can we see some, uh, some changes on that? 
Though it's unclear what will happen, um, Netanyahu himself has signaled that he plans to neutralize the agreement, much like he did the Oslo Accords in his words. That's uh, something he said before the election on Monday. This is softer language, though, than what he said when the deal was first being discussed. This deal came out very, very quickly and was signed very, very quickly towards the end of the election season. Um, of course, it's been something that's been in process for over a decade now, but, but really the possibility of signing the deal um, was heightened by the need to do so before there was a power change both in Lebanon and in Israel, both happening in the beginning of November. Um, Netanyahu said when the deal was initially being discussed in the press that it was a deal that was illegal because he claimed it was giving away sovereign Israeli territory. Uh, according to the UN Convention on the Law of the Seas, uh, this, is not, this is not true. Uh, it is Israeli economic uh, sphere, it is not Israeli sovereign waters. Uh, thus, it, the legal opinion of both the Knesset advisor and the attorney general was that uh, Knesset ratification of the deal was not necessary, neither was a national referendum. Of course, both suggested that given the proximity to elections that a Knesset vote would take place. Uh, Prime Minister Yerlipi did not bring it to Knesset vote. He admitted it was because he didn't have the votes for it in the Knesset, which is the reason right. why we are going to elections to begin with. Uh, so again, Netanyahu said he it was a bad deal. He wouldn't be obligated by it. It was an illegal deal. He softened his language since the deal has been signed and said that he would uh, he would change it. Uh, he wouldn't cancel it, but he would change it much in the way that he did uh, with Oslo. Remains to be seen what actually happens. Mm. Back to back to the kind of the politics and the uh, kind of two nights after the election night. And again, thank you for joining me after what I imagine was a pretty sleepless uh, um, <laughs> few nights. Um, can you tell us where were you on election night and what was the uh, what was what was the mood? So I went to Likud in Jerusalem because you know it it, uh, it was projected to be the winner if we were to have a winner this election season. Mm. But the mood was actually quite subdued. Uh, next door to the Likud event, uh, literally next door was the Jewish power, the Otsma Yehudi's event um, under Itamar Ben-Gavir, and that was actually a party. Um, <laughs> there were mostly young, young men chanting and singing and crying victorious and yelling that Ben-Gavir is king. Of course, Ben-Gavir, although he runs the Otsma Yehudi's party, he doesn't run the joint faction um, under which he ran in the election, which is very interesting that he held his own event. Um, but Likud was sleepy. Uh, Netanyahu's first statement was, you know, something that was cautious optimism. Uh, party MKs uh, said similar uh, sentiments when they passed through the event. Uh, activists only kind of slowly tried to trickle in. Um, there were some that were very loud. It was interesting. I, I saw the, um, the, the main Israeli television station aired its coverage from the Likud event last night. And I, I saw the same five faces over and over again that I saw at the event too, because there were only a few activists there and they were all very loud and, and kind of hamming it up for the cameras because there was nothing else really going on. Um, again, I think this was a symbol of, of what was expected anyway from this election. It was not clear. We were pulling into 60-60 deadlock between um, uh, parties allied to Netanyahu and parties not allied with him. Um, and I think that these, the 65-50 five because again, 65 to Netanyahu, 52 parties uh, allied with Lapid, and then a, a five uh, projected seat, non-aligned Arab bloc, um, was, a, was a happy surprise for Likud supporters, but again, not something that could be counted upon just by exit polls. Sure. Um, I mean, you mentioned uh, the Religious Zionist Party, and interesting, as you say, that the, uh, they, they, they held separate uh, post-election rallies that the uh, the Jewish power, Tzmai Yudit, uh, 
faction of Benvir kind of noting, kind of emphasizing the, the technical block nature of their of their unison with uh, religious Zionism. And now after the Knesset is sworn in, we're expecting that they split up into two, two separate uh, factions. Um, no, not necessarily, they... not oh, okay. necessarily. Um, but that's something that has swirled in reports. Uh, last night, Smotlich went on Channel 12 and said, we're going to do a coordinated negotiation. It's unclear if they'll really separate themselves in the Knesset, either de facto or de jure. Um, mm. we, we actually do not know. I really think this will depend on how power flows in coalition negotiations and how ministries are divided and how people are, are not satisfied with those divisions. Fair enough. Well, we'll talk about that in, in a moment. But just if I focus for a second on the, the religious Zionist list, what can you tell us? I mean, Ben Kvir kind of as a, as a personality has, has been very, very high profile within the Israeli uh, um, media, media scene. And I think some of that is filtered out already into the international media. Um, what can you tell us about the other members of, of his list and kind of are they as, are they as radical extreme as he is? Um, and if any, any other names that we should be looking out in the new Knesset that may, make a, may look to make a splash? So there are two different lists. There's the religious Zionism list. There's the Otsma Yudit list. Of course, they ran together. Um, religious Zionism returns a list that is very similar to the list that it had in the outgoing Knesset. Uh, very pro-settler. Um, we have some folks who are very pro-judicial reforms and Ratman in, uh, in particular is very uh, strong on this issue. He sat on the Judicial Appointments Committee. Um, he's leading religious Zionism's sweeping proposals for judicial reform. Um, so we'll see much of what we saw in the last Knesset with this far-right party, but really far-right from the establishment perspective uh, that we see in the religious Zionism MKs, who again are the same, same MK is pretty much who we saw uh, in last Knesset. In terms of uh, Jewish power, what's my Yudit? Um, these will be relatively newcomers to the scene. In fact, I saw um, there are reports that, that Ben is number two on the list. Um, his name's uh, Wasserloff is going to be a minister perhaps. And he's only about 30 years old. He's become the, the newest minister and sorry, the youngest minister in mm. Israeli history, relative, uh, relatively unknown. Um, these are all folks who um, have either been with Ben Gvir for a very long time or are very aligned with his ideology, um, very pro-annexation, uh, uh, very pro-return um, of what they see as internal security. In fact, I, I would say that internal security is what drove a lot of new voters to Ben Gvir because there were different pools who voted for religious Zionism and for Otsma, despite the fact that they were on the same ticket. Religious Zionism mm. drew its existing base, as well as voters who uh, were frustrated by Yamina, which was a uh, former Prime Minister Bennett's party that's kind of collapsed in this, this uh, last year. It, it uh, didn't even run on the ballot this time. And uh, not having an alternative, um, a lot of people flocked to religious Zionism as the closest ideological alternative, rather than actually shifting their own personal ideologies. And then in terms of Ben Gvir, he picked up a lot of votes around, especially younger folks, uh, ultra-nationalists, um, but also people who felt that Israel's personal security needs to be improved. Um, we've seen, we've had an ongoing terror wave. Um, even last night, there was a, there was a, I don't know how you would say that in English, like a, a car a, ramming, a car ramming. There you go. We had a car ramming event. Um, during election day, there was an attempted kidnapping. Uh, with a, they say national background, it means uh, terrorist related. Mm. Um, we, this is an ongoing thing. These don't usually make the national international press unless it's a soldier killed or 
or um, there's sort of deaths on both sides or, or something kind of more significant, but every day almost it feels like to Israelis there's some sort of incident. Um, and Israelis really feel, especially those who are living in Jerusalem, who are living um, maybe in a settlement, feel that personal security is an issue that the government did not significantly address and, and have flocked to Ben Gvir for an answer. Mm. And one of the other big uh, successes, um, which kind of been perhaps now under the radar because of the result of uh, the overall bloc and uh, religious Zionism, but Shas, an enormous uh, rise up to uh, potentially 12 seats. Um, how, how, do you explain, uh, how do you explain their success? Shas killed it. Shas did a great job on its ground campaign. Um, its communities have felt a lot of frustration after this year, uh, year and a half now in the opposition. Um, there were a couple of symbolic laws and, and budget cuts that really frustrated uh, both uh, Shas's and United Tour Judaism's party, uh, sorry, communities, uh, their, their audiences uh, that they've planned to, um, sorry, promised to, to cancel should they be back in power. Um, but in particular, the, the cost of living issue has been something that's top of mind for almost every Israeli, uh, especially felt within Shas's community. Uh, Haredi communities across Israel um, are about 50% of families within those communities are below the poverty line, uh, driven in part by the fact that about half of adult Haredi men don't work. Instead, they, they study full-time in yeshiva. Um, mm. And this lifestyle, while it can be incredibly meaningful for those who choose it, often comes with a financial ramification and Shas um, defines itself as, you know, they, they say in, in Hebrew, they mean like socially minded, like almost socialist mm. party. Uh, that really um, fights for its, uh, its base to deliver on benefits that could um, help them live a more comfortable life. Thank you. And if we turn kind of to some of the uh, losers or the disappointed side, I mean, first of all, um, in the National, U the National uh, Unity Party, uh, the, the party led by Benny Gantz, they, they thought they'd pulled off a coup when they brought in um, the, another former IDF Chief of Staff Gadi Eisenkot didn't re really make the impression on the electorate that they were hoping. Um, where do you think that's, that leaves this party more generally and specifically Eisenkot, whether he'll be satisfied sitting as a, as a backbencher in the opposition? It's interesting because National Unity pitches itself as a centrist party. It consistently calls itself centrist. It, it's centrist in the sense that if you, you apply the law of averages, it's a centrist party because it's, it's really a big tent party that includes um, lawmakers with right-wing ideology, with centrist ideology, with left-wing ideology. Benny Gantz's Blue and White uh, was a centrist party with some left-wing members. It joined with uh, Guido Nsar's um, New Hope Party, which was a decidedly right-wing party of mostly Likud refugees who left not because of ideological division with Likud, but personal antipathy to Benjamin Netanyahu as its leader. Um, and trying to combine these, these voices, and then you're adding Gabby Eisenkot, who's said uh, that we need to separate from the Palestinians with um, Sar and, and Zev Elkin, who lives in settlement, uh, was very difficult, <laughs> I think, for national unity to sell to voters any sort of coherent ideology um, mm -hmm. apart from wanting unity. Um, of course, this unity necessarily within its own party remains to be seen how it will play out. Of course, they're in the opposition, so it might be easier to allay some of these divisions. Um, there are rumors that Likud wants to pull away defectors from national unity into the coalition. 
Um, there was a statement released by the party yesterday that it plans to sit in the opposition. Of course, that doesn't prevent any of its MKs from defecting once they're um, invested in the in the Knesset in September. I'm sorry, on a <clears throat> I have like a tickle on my throat. It doesn't prevent any of their MKs from defecting once uh, they are seated in the Knesset on November 15th. Um, the party just didn't have a credible claim to the prime ministership. It said that uh, Gantt should be prime minister as sort of a compromise candidate between Lapid and Netanyahu. Lapid could not articulate how he would form a coalition. His biggest play was to block Netanyahu from forming one and push for a sixth election. Netanyahu claimed he would form a coalition that looks like he will form now. And Gantt said, nobody disqualifies me and the people I won't sit with are the extremist religious Zionism and uh, the, the Arab parties. Um, so, you know, choose me for prime minister, of course, ignoring the fact that uh, the parties that he would claim to be able to bring together both were allied to other parties um, and uh, had personal antipathy among themselves, notably Avigdor Lieberman, uh, who's the head of Israel Beitinu, and the Haredi parties who have deep, deep-seated antipathy towards each other. Right. Um, so if we look ahead to, uh, to the, the, the building of the coalition, I mean, it all seems relatively straightforward that with the, as we've mentioned, the Likud, the, the two ultra-Orthodox parties and the religious Zionists, they have potentially 65. Is that a done deal or do you think there will be any pressure for Gantz or, or any members of his party or any other players to enter and, and kind of dilute the influence of the hard right within this coalition? So there's there's a couple of problems that Netanyahu has with this coalition that's been kind of handed to him, right, as this, I, I would say, um, ready-made kind of solution, put the key in the ignition mm. and drive. Uh, one is that Netanyahu is the left flank of this coalition. That's going to be a very uncomfortable um, position for the leader of the right to be in. Uh, traditionally, prime ministers don't like to be at an extreme of their coalition. We saw a problem with that um, with uh, Naftali Bennett, who consistently was unable to implement his own party's right-wing ideology right. because he was the rightmost flank of his coalition. Um, so Netanyahu, um, already probably wary of the need to restrain forces like Bengvale, is not going to want to be the leftmost member of his own coalition. So it would be great to bring in a party or uh, members of a party to kind of soften that side for him. Um, another issue is that 65 is better than 61, which this outgoing coalition had, but still a pretty narrow government. You only have four MKs uh, before you lose your majority. You probably, at this point, that means you have one party you lose or a part of a party. Let's say, like we said, the, the technical block between Bengvay and Smoklich, if one of them becomes disaffected for some reason and leaves, you would lose your majority. It also means individual MKs, even within the Likud, Exter factions within the Likud could hold legislation ransom. It would be better for Netanyahu to pull um, additional folks in and broaden his government and increase its stability in that way. Who he can do, who he could bring in, who he can convince, unclear. Yes, very much, uh, very much, <laughs> very much, very much. I mean, I mean, I suppose another question not related to that would be, you know, um, President Herzog has also talked about the need with kind of the issues that the country faces, both the uh, both security, external and and domestic, uh, economic related, that the a national unity government is kind of suits the the needs of the country. I wonder how much influence he has, and kind of whether Benny Gantz himself, although as you mentioned, he went on record yesterday to to say he's going to the opposition. Whether when he talks about 
putting Israel above everything else first, whether that also includes kind of national responsibility to enter into a into and to help help Netanyahu out in that sense to create more of a, a balanced government. Benny Gantz has been burned by Netanyahu before. Um, right. To use his words, uh, Netanyahu has used up all the political capital in the bank uh, with Gantz. Um, Gantz and Netanyahu formed a government together in 2020. They called it Unity Government to handle the ongoing corona crisis. Uh, part of the premise of that government was that Netanyahu would take the first rotation in the premiership and then hand it over to Gantz. But to prevent that from happening, uh, instead the, the budget was blocked and early elections were forced. And that led to the, the 2021 election that ultimately did oust Netanyahu from power for a year and a half. Um, so Gantz is, has felt burned by Netanyahu, of course, to even form that government, which he said, and um, people close to him say he really believes this, and I, I would tend to also believe him in this. Um, he really thought it was for the good of the country to make that move. He he broke his alliance with Yair Lapid to do that, and so there's been some kind of bad blood between them ever since, despite the fact mm. that they've managed to work together in this outgoing coalition. So uh, I think the idea of Gantz going back to Netanyahu, uh, he's been very clear and consistent that he will not do it. Netanyahu's also said he won't sit with Gantz. I think that Netanyahu would be more open to Gantz than vice versa. Again, anything could happen. Uh, I think it's very uncomfortable to be in the opposition, um, especially coming off of a year and a half in power, coming off of a year and a half as defense minister, one of the most senior posts in this country. I think it'd be very hard for Benny Gantz to go sit in the opposition as a backbencher. Yes, indeed. Um, one of the other issues that was kind of quite prominent in the election campaign were issues around the uh, the reforming of the judicial system. Um, now that the Likud has his, has his majority, who would you speculate gets the uh, the justice ministry portfolio? And if you could talk about kind of some of those reforms that they spoke about and how realistic you think uh, those those changes could be. I think the the who gets the what. Um, ministry portfolio is a dangerous speculation game. Um, it changes so quickly. It's it's all just kind of a you know a hypothetical until it settles. So, but let's talk about some of the reforms. The main mm. reforms that have been discussed um, kind of fall into three different categories. Um, one is uh, increasing political control over uh, the Supreme Court and judiciary, and that would be in two different ways. One would be something called a superseding clause, um, creating a, a law whereby, or a mechanism by whereby the Knesset can reinstate um, legislation that was invalidated by the Supreme Court on grounds of being unconstitutional. Um, put that one aside. The second way is to change uh, the method of Supreme Court appointment. Uh, currently, it's done by a committee called the Judicial Appointments Committee. Um, Religious Zionism wants to hack that committee with politicians in order to put it more firmly into political control rather than representatives of the bar and the judiciary that are currently in it. Uh, Likud has proposed a measure to take that committee out of the equation entirely and make the appointment um, by the ministry, uh, Minister of Justice with Knesset approval and in a functioning coalition that's basically uh, almost a rubber stamp to whatever the government wants to go through. Um, the third big reform being discussed is splitting the role of the Attorney General, which uh, currently has an inherent conflict of interest in that the Attorney General is both the government's top lawyer and also the head of the prosecution. And in Israel, where many of our 
politicians have been prosecuted, including our current prime minister, uh, sorry, our uh, potential next prime minister, mm. uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who is currently on trial for four counts of uh, graft. Um, that could be a conflict of interest. Um, the other reform that was proposed by religious Zionism is to cancel uh, one of these graft charges. It's called fraud and breach of trust. It forms the basis of three of Netanyahu's four uh, cases, uh, sorry, four charges in, in three cases. Um, this charge is something that the legal community has attacked for years. It is vague, it is unclear. Um, the contours of the law are unclear you could know what you're doing is illegal before you've already done it. Um, there are problems with this charge, and, and that's part of the reason that they're having issues kind of uh, definitively proving this charge, I'd say, in, in Netanyahu's trial. Um, that being said, if the charge were just to be canceled under current Israeli law, it would retroactively apply to his trial and cancel those three charges within it. Um, Netanyahu has said that he will not promote anything that cancels his trial, uh, religious Zionism has also said that they would find a way for it not to affect his trial. Benkver has said he would want it to retroactively apply to the trial and cancel it. So these are these are the flavors of law. Um, judicial judicial um, judicial reform that we've been discussed. I would also say that the Haredi parties uh, within this potential coalition are also very pro judicial reform. Uh, the Haredi community has long chafed against the Supreme Court, which they see as very activist and interfering uh, with their, their, their life. They feel like the, the secular court is interfering in matters of uh, perhaps religion or their, their own kind of lifestyles. Um, and they would like to see the court be less activist. Um, so these flavors of reform are being discussed. Pro-judicial pro reform um, advocates like Smotrich say that the, the current system is sick and in need of repair. Um, other folks say, these reforms could potentially undermine Israeli democracy um, and uh, lead to kind of tyranny, 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 <laughs> the tyranny of the political over the judicial. Mm. Um, we'll see what happens. Uh, I think it can be very consequential for Israel, uh, but because it's a technical issue, uh, it causes a lot of people's eyes to glaze over. And I don't think that it's necessarily received the amount of public attention that it deserves. Sure. Well, not our audience, I'm sure they are wide awake and eagerly going to anticipate and watch uh, how this develops. Um, perhaps one last question. Um, also, I suppose, in the, in the category of the, the failure of this election, so we're looking, we're, we're having, waiting for it confirmed with the final results, but it looks like merits are out of the, out of the, uh, the Knesset in its entirety. Um, Labour for a time was also very close to the threshold. Um, what's the significance? You know, what's what's happened to the left? And I know this is a, a big question to end, but just briefly, kind of, how do you assess that uh, that failure of the left and what it means for them going forward? Ideologically, the late, the left has been in crisis uh, ever since the kind of fall of the Oslo Accords. As they fell apart, so did the Labour's own self-conception and its argument to voters of, of why it should be leading the country. Uh, tactically, uh, this was a fail within the bloc itself. Uh, Merits and Labour were pressured uh, by Lapid to unite their lists, much like religious Zionism and Otsma did, um, in order to prevent exactly the scenario where one of the two would fall under the threshold. Um, Labour uh, was adamantly against it. Uh, Labour Chief Mirav Mikhaili refused to even, um, to even contrast the idea. Um, 
Lapide had called them together several times, called them separately to discuss it. He had even apparently offered a very lucrative deal to labor to sweeten it. Um, he's received a lot of criticism that he did not pay enough attention to this, this issue politically, that he did not apply enough force on it. Um, and then in terms of campaigning, that he did not encourage voters to go out and vote for merits and to labor and instead um, voted, encouraged them to go vote for Yeshatid. And so he didn't sufficiently defend the block um, and merits is falling below the threshold with over 3% when the threshold is 3.25%. It's interesting to note that uh, according to the current tallies and we're around 90% right now, the vote counted. Um, if you look at uh, the Lapid change block plus uh, Arab parties against um, the Netanyahu block, and you, you do away with the threshold, you do away with vote share agreements, you see that we're about 60-60 uh, in terms of mm. mandates. Um, this would not have been a government for Lapid, but it would have been a block. Um, and this includes, of course, Balad, which is the Palestinian Nationalist Party, which also took a, a large share of votes for not passing. Um, but uh, this, this scenario goes in both ways because apparently this also happened in 2019. Um, in that Naftali Bennett's party, which was then called the New Right, barely, barely, barely did not pass the threshold. It was it was missing very, very small number of votes, um, and burned you know 3.24 percent, let's say, of votes for the right wing bloc, and and uh, actually made it impossible for them to form a government because of that. And so the kind of the chapeau went to the other side of the equation. This happens in Israeli politics, but in terms of a uh, voter turnout, that's that's how, <laughs> that, that's the crisis of, uh, of merits turned out to be a crisis for the block itself. Right, right. And these, I mean, these, are, these are the rules of the game here. It's, I mean, the, the popular vote, you know, cited in other countries as, a, as justification for something, but the name of the game is getting over the, getting over the threshold and then that, uh, the results speak for themselves. Um, Absolutely. Karen, thank you so much indeed for, for your time today. We very much appreciate it. And we will uh, continue to follow your, your writing on the Times of Israel website. And similarly, for our listeners to, to follow up on Bicom Analysis um, on our website and uh, wishing, you, wishing, wishing us all uh, stability, at least. <laughs> Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.